Well, good morning to you again, and uh, it's good to see you all. Uh, I know that um, many of us are absent today. Uh, I think that Carrie's uh, got to do some work uh, in the office so she couldn't make it, and uh, also that we have a, uh, a Hong Kong girl, a uh, 16-year-old girl, as, as some of you might know, whom we hosted uh, for the last 12 days. So uh, she was having uh, the time of her life and uh, enjoying her food and her dinners. So then she was very reluctant to leave. <laughs> so she was supposed to leave yesterday, but she, does, she decided to stay for another day. So she, she'll be only leaving this morning. Uh, so uh, that's why Carrie's got to see her off as well, because being a 16-year-old child, so uh, we, we, we have the parental responsibility over her. So she'll be going back to Brighton uh, to continue her studies in Brighton. So uh, this morning, what I'm going to do is that uh, we, we are not going back to Agape Love as yet. Uh, I hope that I'm, I'm not going to keep on going away as further and further away from Agape Studies itself, but uh, Hopefully this will be the, the last for, for the time being. So what are we going to do this morning is that we're going to look at one of those very uh, interesting incidents uh, that took place during the golden era of Is, uh, Israel's history. That was under the leadership of uh, Joshua. Uh, you know that uh, this Joshua took over Israel's leadership, as uh, some of you might know, from Moses after Moses died. And when Joshua took over the leadership itself, this was the period of time when Israel, as a people, you know, they, they started to move into the land of Canaan, the promised land by, by God. So uh, this was basically, uh, it was known as the golden era of the history of Israel. Because we know that for the last 40 years during the times of Moses, that Israel was in the wilderness because of the sin, you know, of their sins, uh, their, their, their stubbornness and the rebellion against God. So they, they were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. So when Joshua took over, a new generation of Israelites, the second generation that came out of uh, the land of Egypt uh, would begin to enter the promised land. So that was basically the, uh, recorded in Joshua 20, 21 verses 43 to 45. So what happened uh, in, in this, uh, this period of time that we, sh- we are going to focus on is that basically that, uh, this was the time when Israel had just about to receive all their allotment, the lands that they were, the territories they, they were given, it was given by God uh, through the prom- his promise to Abraham, uh, that was centuries be- before, uh, as far back as Genesis twelve seventeen, when God promised Abraham that uh, his descendants would inherit a land. So now that what we are looking at today uh, is, a, is the text that tells us the the time when Israel, under the leadership of Joshua from Joshua twenty two, uh, we, that's the text we, we're going to focus on today, where Israel actually had in 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 a way finally kind of fought and subdued the remaining Canaanites in, 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 the, in the promised land, in the land of Canaan. So there were three tribes that we want to, we want to uh, focus on today uh, amongst 12 tribes of Israel, namely the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and what is, was called the half-tribe of Manasseh. Uh, I'll explain that very shortly as well. So these three tribes were actually involved in the, in the, bat- the series of battles against the Canaanites, which they finally subdued in the land of Canaan. So with the battle over, the victory won. So this was the time when uh, these three tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribes of, Man- half-tribe of Manasseh, uh, you know, would be returning back to their own lands, yeah, to, to basically to, to be reunited with their families. So when, uh, in, your, in your notes, you'll see a map that I printed out. So you can see that the big words Manasseh, which I've circled for you, Manasseh in the north, yeah, and then you have got Gad below it, and then you get Ruben. 
And then you have Shiloh, the, the, the place called Shiloh, which is circled as well, on the western side of the River Jordan. So this is how the map of Israel looked like under, uh, under, under the, uh, uh, the leadership of Joshua. So as I mentioned earlier, the tribe was, one of the three tribes was called the half-tribe of Manasseh. And when you look at the map, you can tell you, you can roughly know why it's called the half-tribe of Manasseh. Because the entire tribe of Manasseh was occupying a part of the land that was actually divided by the river Jordan in the middle. You can see that line that goes in the middle that cuts Manasseh into half. That was the river Jordan. Yeah? So here you are, you see that basically on the, on the, uh, on the left side, which is the western side of the river Jordan, you have the one half of the Manasseh tribe. And on the eastern side of, of the Jordan, you have the other half of the Manasseh tribe. And that's why it was called the half tribe of Manasseh. Usually the other half uh, on, the, on the eastern side was known as the half tribe of Manasseh. Okay, so there you can see, on the eastern side of the river Jordan, you got Manasseh in the north, and then down south you got Gad in the middle, and then Ruben. So these were the three tribes that were, they, they were occupying the western side of the river Jordan. And that's why that for today's purpose, on the eastern side, on the eastern side of the river Jordan. So for today's purposes, I will, I will call these three tribes collectively as the eastern tribes. Okay, so when you hear me say, mentioning the eastern tribes, I was talking, I'm talking about the half tribe of Manasseh, Gad, and Ruben. Okay, and the rest of the tribes on the, on the other side of the river Jordan, on the west, I will call them the western tribes. Okay, the, the, the remaining tribes. Uh, of Israel, so it makes it easier. So as I've said that, the text actually begins from, Gen uh, from Joshua 22 verses 1 to 6, where after, after the battle against the Canaanites, subduing the Canaanites, the Canaanites, so Joshua now was telling these three tribes that they could return to their families across the river Jordan and be reunited with them. But also before they left, Joshua reminded them to be faithful to God, to obey God. Okay, so that, that, that sets the, the, the scene for us uh, so that uh, you, you can un you can you, you, you can know that that's the that's the background to it itself so at this point in time in the history of israel there's one thing you need to bear in mind is this that jerusalem wasn't there yet okay so jerusalem was from the days of king david so this was way before king david so israel central uh, the central point of worship for israel at this point in time was at a place called shiloh that's why on the map you can see that there's a a circle, I circled a place called Shiloh. When you look at the map, be familiar with the map. Shiloh is on the western side, the river Jordan in the middle, and then the other three eastern tribes are all across the river. Yeah? So bear this in mind, uh, because uh, this is very important, the geographic location is important for our studies. So you can understand why some, these things were about to happen very shortly. So now we have set the background, the geographical picture in your mind. So you know roughly uh, how, how, the, how the map looks like now and where the tribes were sitting as far as the eastern tribes are concerned. So let's look at the, the passage. We're going we're gonna to start looking at Joshua 22, verse 10. We, let's begin our study there. In verse 10, the scripture tells us this. And when they, that's the, the eastern tribes, when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, that's the tribe of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half tribe of half of the tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan. A great impressive altar. So the writer now tells us that after the return of the, the, the eastern tribes back to their land, so they, these, these men 
decided to build a replica altar. That means something that looks exactly like the, the, the altar in the tabernacle. Remember that in the tabernacle that there was an altar, isn't it? So this, this, this tribe built one that was very similar to the one at Shiloh. Because Shiloh was the place of worship at this time. But in fact, this, this new altar that was built on the other side of the River Jordan was actually more impressive than the one that Moses commanded. So better looking than the one at Shiloh, where Israel worshipped at Shiloh. They offered sacrifices at the altar there. So now we know. Those on the eastern side returned home, built an altar that looks like the one in Shiloh, but more impressive in terms of the, 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 the appearance itself. So the story continues in Joshua 22, uh, verses 11 to 12. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half, tribe of, half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region of the Jordan, on the children of Israel's site. And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. So at this, now by this time, news came you know, to the western tribes that those on the eastern side of the Jordan, they have built this altar that looks just like the one in Shiloh if not even better looking. So this itself caused the Western tribes to be very disturbed. And as a result, that the writer tells us that, well, the Western tribes started to prepare for war. They got all, this, their, all their army together, ready to, to go, go across the Jordan and fight against the Eastern tribes. So what happens next is interesting. Uh, Joshua 22 again, verse, verses 13 down. We're going to read all the verses 13 to 18. Then the children of Israel sent Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to half the tribe of Manasseh, into the land of Gilead. And with him ten rulers, each one from the chief house of every tribe of Israel. And each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. Then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to half the tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead. And they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What treasury is this that you have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord in that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord? Is the iniquity of Peol not enough for us or from which we are not cleansed till this day? Although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, that, but that you must turn away this day from, the, from following the Lord, and it shall be, if you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. So, we know earlier that when they heard the news about the new altar, the Western tribes started to gather the army together. They were about to cross over to, to fight the Eastern, Eastern, the Eastern tribes. But somehow, perhaps that after calming down, you know, after thinking about it, reflecting on it, uh, so instead of hastily acting on it by going to battle and fight and kill the, the eastern tribe um, people, the leadership decided to send Phinas, the, the priest, perhaps he was the high priest, uh, you know, with other representatives of the tribes uh, across the Jordan to meet with the brethren over there. So the, the Bible tells us here that when, the, when Phinas and the delegation actually arrived, 
you notice that what Phineas did was that, that they, they, he, he immediately confronted the eastern tribes and accused them of treachery and rebellion because they built this new altar. And then that if, you, if you notice, uh, Phineas also reminded the, the eastern tribes, he said, have you not learned from the past rebellion you know, uh, you know, of our father's appeal? Yeah, this, this rebellion was recorded in Numbers chapter 25. You know, this was a story where uh, Israel was uh, basically, they, 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 started, they stopped and rested in, in the land of Moab, which was actually on the river Jordan. On the eastern side, you go further down south, you see the land of Moab. So that was where uh, they, they, they settled down in the land of Moab at Acacia Grove, where they met some Moabites, and, you know, that, uh, women from Moab. And this was the, the account when Moses tells us that the Israelites decided to intermingle with the pagan, the pagan Moabites and committed fornication with them and worshipped their gods. So as a result of this itself, this, was, this happened during Moses' days. So as a result of this, that the Lord actually killed 24,000 Hebrews. 24,000 Israelites were killed as a result of this, uh, of this rebellion. You know, those who survived this plague, uh, yeah, th those who survived the, the, the killing by God, would eventually die in the wilderness because of the rebellion. So the consequences was, was felt. You know, had been felt all the way until the days of Joshua. Because the fathers who did this, they all died in the wilderness because of this. So the, the new generation of Israelites, they have wised up to it. They, they, they realized that, well, that was a very, <laughs> you know, uh, important lesson for us at all. So we need to remember that never to, to go down that route of rebelling against God. And that's why you can see why that the Western tribes decided to go and confront the Eastern tribes you know, to deal with the rebellion itself. You see? So the, the conversation between Phineas and the, and the delegation continues here in Joshua 22 verses 19 down to 20 where the scripture tells us, Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. But do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us, by building yourselves an altar beside the altar of the Lord your God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel, and that man did not perish alone in his iniquity? So, okay. So, Israel on the western side started the whole thing quite badly. They heard news about the altar. They raised an army ready to fight the, 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 the tribes on the, west, on, the, on the eastern side. But to their credit, as we can see, somehow they calmed down. They decided to talk instead of fight first. So now to their credit, so in, instead of simply just telling those brethren on the eastern side off, they offered to share their own inheritance land with the, with the eastern tribe. You know, by saying to them that, well, if you think that if, if you have built this altar because you think that the land is unclean on the eastern side of the Jordan, come over and join us and share the land with us instead. And Phineas actually you know, uh, added a more recent experience for Israel that happened during this second generation of Israelites under Joshua, you know, where he mentioned the sin of a man called Achan or Achan. That happened in Joshua chapter 7, verses 10 to 26. This happened more recently. Not like the one in Peor. Peor was 40 years ago. So this, this happened more recently in their own generation. 
And that this sin of Achan was one man's sin that almost destroyed the entire nation of Israel. Uh, you know, that they basically that they, they learned from that. So those who serve, those who actually learned from that Achan's lesson, they they knew how deadly sin was. You know, and how that sin it, it can be so infectious and deadly to the point that one man's sin, Achan, could have destroyed the entire nation of God's people. So as a result of that itself, you know, that uh, Phineas warned the Eastern Brethren that, well, we, we don't want that to happen again to us. That happened with Achan was bad enough. We don't want you guys to, to start something and affect everyone else on the western border or on the western side of the river itself because we are associated by family. So there were two historical rebellions being mentioned uh, in this conversation which has deeply been etched in their minds. So they say that, well, you guys, this is not going to be a one-off thing, you know. Achan was a one-off thing. The one at P.O. was a one-off thing. Uh, by building an altar, this is going to be a permanent thing. You know, you guys on the eastern side, are you going to permanently rebel against God? And if you are going to do that, then that is bad on us on the western side. And we don't want it to happen. You see? That's why, that's the reason why that they were very, very concerned about, you know, this altar that was built on the other side of the Jordan. So the story continues there, to Joshua 22, verses 21 down, where the scripture says, Then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh answered, and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knows. And let Israel itself know. If it is in rebellion, or if in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings, or if to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require an account. But in fact, we have done it for fear, for a reason, saying, In time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, What have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and between you and us. You children of Reuben and children of Gad, you have no part in the Lord. So your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord. Therefore we say, let us prepare to build an altar, ourselves an altar, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but it may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us, that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt, off burnt offerings, with our sacrifices, and with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. Therefore we say that it will be, when they say this to us or to our generations in time to come, that we may say, Here is the replica of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, though not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between you and us. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings or grain offerings for, or for sacrifices besides the altar of the Lord our God which, he which is before his tabernacle. So here, the western side has spoken their, their, their minds. So now it's time for the eastern side to reply. So having heard the, the accusations against them about this new altar, so the eastern tribes just say that, well, we, we understand your concerns about 
this altar, you, that I, we can understand why you are thinking that we are, we are rebelling against God. By building this altar, the burnt offerings, instead of going to the tabernacle to do it. So they say that, well, uh, it's not our intention to do this with the altar. The altar is not going to be for burnt offerings or sacrifices. That should be done at Shiloh, where the tabernacle is. But this is just a replica. You know, that in the event that in the future, our future generations, where if there's going to be any questions about our tribes on the eastern side, you know, belonging to the nation of Israel as a whole, this altar replica will be the witness to show that we are part of, we are part of Israel. So that was the whole purpose of it. Because that we do not want our descendants to feel isolated and then eventually they go into apostasy and leave, leave the Lord. So the altar was there to, for that purpose. Nothing else. So then the writer continues in Joshua 22 with the response from the western side. The scripture says in verse 20 of Joshua 22. Verse 30 says, Now when Phineas the priest and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the divisions of Israel who were with him, heard these words, that the children of the children of Reuben, Reuben the, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke. It pleased them. Then Phineas the son of Eliezer the priest said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And Phineas, the son of Eliezer the priest, and the rulers returned from the children of Gad, Reuben, the children of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought back word to them. So the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel blessed God. They spoke no more of going to Reuben, and the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, called the witness uh, to destroy the land where the, the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the witness, the author witness, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So here, when Phineas heard of the, rest, the, the explanation from the three tribes on the eastern side, they, they were very happy. They were very pleased and relieved to know that oh, the altar was not a rebellion. The altar was simply symbolic of their unity in, in, in God. You know, so the matter was resolved. So they, they must have been relieved that thank God that we didn't send an army across and fight them without clarifying. So at least now we, 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 we have spoken, we clarified the matter and it has been resolved. So we can go back and tell the people there and it pleased everybody. The matter was resolved. So what can we observe and learn uh, from this interesting incident, as you will call it, during the golden era of Israel's history? I think that this incident highlights to us some of the strengths and the weaknesses of the Western, lead, uh, Western tribe's leadership in how they were dealing with these matters of sin issue, especially this particular issue of sin, as you as call an alleged sin of the author itself. I think their experience can also become our learning today. You know, the reason why I've decided to speak on this passage is because that uh, sometimes there they are, they are brethren who seem to think that they are members of a perfectly peaceful and harmonious, sound and faithful congregation. You know, there are brethren who think that they are members of a congregation that is perfectly sound and harmonious and united. Brethren, there is no such thing as a perfectly harmonious and peaceful, sound, faithful congregation. There's no such thing. 
But you might say that, well, Sunny, you're saying that there's no faithful congregation. No, no, I'm, not I'm not saying that. I'm not suggesting that there are no faithful and sound congregations. There are. Okay, so don't get me wrong here. But what I'm saying is that amongst the sound and faithful churches of the Lord, there is always internal problems. There will always be internal problems in every sound and faithful uh, congregation. Problems that needed to be resolved internally. Yeah? Unless you are members of those congregations in the long term, you will never, you will never know. That's why that, you know, that when you look at some of the churches around, the faithful and sound churches, like St. Like Matthew where Johnny Oxenine came from, okay, Fish Hatchery where Bruce, Hatch, uh, Bruce came from, David Brown from the Spring, you know, they're all known, well known in their faithful brotherhood to be sound and faithful. But if you were to really know the, 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 the things that's going in the, in the congregation, you know that you will realize basically that uh, they do have their internal problems. But the leadership, the elderships over there will, will be dealing with that itself. So there will always be problems. The reason is because that amongst every congregation, there will always be spiritually immature Christians, isn't it? The spiritually immature Christians will do things wrong. So that they need to be taught and they need to be encouraged and educated to grow spiritually. And there will also be, always be members amongst those congregations who want to keep their feet in the church and in the world at the same time. You know, and they will cause problems. And they too need to be educated and to be rebuked from within the church. As long as there are people, there will always be problems. That's the way it is. The congregation may be sound and faithful, but it does not necessarily mean that it is always peaceful and harmonious. There will always be problems, which the leadership and the eldership needs to face and deal with, especially when it comes to issues of sin. As far as dealing with sin and, 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 and issues within the church is concerned, ignoring them is not an option in God's eyes. Yeah? God's, God never gave the church the option of ignoring the, those problems, especially the problems with sin. If you ignore it, the, the church will fall in the apostasy eventually. And that's the way it is. So therefore, learning how to face and address church problems you know, is, 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 is an important subject that needs to be taught and that needs to be put into practice in order to protect the church from evil and sin. Evil and sin is very infectious. If you leave someone who is in sin alone and let him care or her carry on, perpetuating the sin within the church, eventually the church be, will, will be infected by it. Experience in other churches have taught me that. And this is, this is a fact and the scripture tells us that this is how it is. So therefore, it's important for us to learn how to, how to deal with these problems. And the experience of the Western tribes in how they deal with the problems with the Eastern tribe, I think it's something for us to learn. So this morning, what I want to do is to, let's, uh, to look at how, how, they, how they approach the issues and how to deal with it, and let's learn from it, yeah? What to do and what not to do at the same time. Speaking of dealing with problems and sensitive issues, especially issues that affect eternity and one's salvation within the church, where the Western tribes, we look at the Western tribes, yeah, from, Josh, from Joshua 22. The Western tribes could have reacted at least in three different ways. At least three different ways. The first way that they could, they could do is to, was to ignore the problem. Oh, well, this is an Eastern problem, Eastern tribe problem across the River Jordan. We are too far from them. They are across the River Jordan. None of our business. Let's not go and stick our noses in. 
our noses are not that long to stick into it. Let them destroy themselves. <coughs> Brethren, uh, this option would be very unloving. You know, that uh, we should never let our brethren or anyone who is in sin, as you call, rot in hell. Without at least trying to help them see sense in the first place. Ignoring them is not an option. Just imagine this. If God were to ignore us when we were in sin, where would we be? So why should we ignore brethren or others who are in sin? without even trying to help them see sense. So that's the first option. Ignore them. The second option is pull the trigger. Go to war. Go and fight it out. That was what they were trying to do in the beginning, isn't it? They were trying to go and fight the, the eastern side. But this would have been a too hasty a response. You know, that I think that had they gone across and fight without talking first, that would have been too hasty. And we can appreciate, you know, that... Uh, why, why would they want to do that in the beginning? That, uh, you know, prepare the army and go across and fight? This, uh, this was a very hot-headed initial reaction, we know. Why did, would they want to do that? I think that Phineas' words to the Eastern tribe tells you. Their experience at Acacia Grove, at Moab, from the father's generation, and then their own generation's the problem with Achan's sin, that nearly destroyed Israel altogether, you know, would have been a those those who have been red flags for them to remind them of the dangers of sin, and when there's sin in the camp, let's not be too relaxed about it, because we were relaxed with Achan, we were relaxed with Acacia Grove. Look what God did to us. So they learn those lessons and they say, if we see the author, then we better deal with it. So we can understand why they were very edgy. They were very, uh, you know, uh, hasty in their, in their actions when they heard the rumors about the new author itself. Perhaps that something that went, must have gone in their minds when they heard about the rumors of the author being built on the other side. You know, things like, oh no, not again. Oh no, not again, another rebellion coming. Maybe this would have crossed their minds. You know, they, they would have remi reminded themselves of the Lord's judgment before at Peel and at, with, with Achan's case. And hence, as a result, that you can see why they, they were very quick in raising the army, getting ready to fight the battle with the eastern tribes. Perhaps they, 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 they thought that if we don't go and fight and destroy them, the Lord will destroy us. So in a sense, better them than us. And hence, that we can understand why that they were trying to do this. So this is where the, I think one of the first criticisms that we, uh, we can make against uh, in terms of the, the Western tribes' res initial response itself about this rumour, about this uh, author being built there. Yes, the rumour was true, the author was there. But I think the issue for us is not just about the rumour, but how they reacted to the rumour. You see? It's a very common reaction. We hear something, we react. You know, sometimes in a very hasty way, without carrying out the due diligence of investigation. You know, we don't verify things and then we react on it. It's quite common, isn't it? But for them, living at that age where the, the, the transmission of news was not as quick as us. Today, you hear something, you can go on the internet, Google, or what you call that? Uh, Alexia, is it? Alexa, Alexa is it? Or where is Alexa, can you find me this? Where is? You know, we can find information pretty quickly today. In those days, things were not like that. So the news, the rumors may not be as accurate. And as a result of that, the risk of getting it wrong 
which would have been very common, the duty of due diligence of investigation would be more, uh, should be more on the forefront of their minds. Let's check it out first. I think that that should, that should be the, the way. A good example of how inaccurate rumors were in those days is you can see in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 29 to 32, which we will not read the text itself. I'm giving you the reference there. This was a case of Absalom. Absalom was one of the sons of David. Yeah? And that this was the incident where Absalom actually murdered his brother Amnon. Because if you know the story, remember that story when I, in my sermon on David before, sermons on David before, Amnon lasted after his half-sister was Absalom's sister, Tamar. You know? That his lust for her was so much that he actually raped her. And that's why the Absalom, the brother of Tamar, was really upset with his half-brother, Amnon. You see? So as a result of that, he, 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 he arranged for this feast, this celebration dinner, where he invited all the sons of David over. And so when the occasion was right, Absalom sent his men and killed Amnon during, during the meal. And that shocked the rest of the half-brothers. So all of them fled from that place. They, they, left, they fled alive. But when, if you read the story itself, it, the story tells you that when this news of Absalom's murder of Amnon happened, news quickly went to David in Jerusalem. The news was that Absalom massacred all his brothers. David couldn't believe it. You see? David was very upset. But then, it, then, thankfully, the more accurate news came thereafter, shortly thereafter, where the news was, no, 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 no. The rest of the sons were saved. It was only Amnon was murdered. You know, the first news was fake news. Then the, the accurate news came. So you can see, you see, that how, how inaccurate rumors could be in those days. If had it not been proper with, done with proper verification itself, that would have been disastrous in the case of Joshua 22. You see? That had the Western tribes not investigate first and send the army across, Half of, uh, half of the numbers of Israel would have been destroyed. They're leaving only behind the ten tribes for no good reasons. So this shows, you see, the danger of jumping to conclusions too quickly without proper investigations. We hear, we hear, we hear people telling us things. But remember this, what you hear is often one-sided. Yeah? You need to hear the other side as well and verify things. And as a result of things like that, hearing only one side and jumping to conclusions very quickly, it, many relationships have been destroyed. Because why? Because that one party decides you know, to just draw conclusions on the basis of what they heard on one side without listening to the other side of the story. And this is how many people react today you know, to, to, to things, especially when it comes to matters of sin. You hear something of sin, you know, you jump to conclusion, yeah, 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 I believe it, straight away. Uh, you know, that uh, they will hear it, but they, were, they are not listening, I say. That they heard it, but they're not listening. By listening means listening carefully. Listening carefully means that you do your due diligence by verifying the information to make sure that the information is true. Sometimes it may not be a deliberate lie, but it's, maybe it's told from a one-sided point of view, so that the information is kind of skewed in favor of one side. So you want to hear the, the story in full. So speak to the other side as well. So you get an overall clear picture as to what's happening and you can assess the information and make the right decision. And this is very important. Don't just hear, but listen. 
carefully. That's what it is. A good example of it, of those people who jump to conclusions very quickly, uh, happened in Acts 24, 10, uh, and 10 to, uh, verses 10 to 12. This was an account where, where, where Paul was basically under trial before Felix. You know, Paul told Felix, the, the Roman governor, he said that, well, I'm here in, to defend myself against the false charges that has been heard against me. Uh, this is what the Jews say concerning me, that I, I, I have been teaching contrary to the law of Moses, and that I have brought a Gentile into the temple in Jerusalem. That was what uh, Paul was telling uh, uh, Felix, and he said that this is not true. They haven't proven the case at all, and they are charging me with it. But where did the, the Jews get this impression? Especially on the point about the part of where Paul brought a Gentile into the temple in Jerusalem. That was actually in Acts 21, verses 27 to 29. This account that Luke, Luke the writer, tells us that the Jews saw Paul coming to Jerusalem with a man. Okay, a, a man by the name of Trophimus. So, and they were in, walking in Jerusalem city. They all knew that Trophimus was an efficient Gentile. Maybe that he didn't have the skull cap, so they, they can see that he wasn't Jewish. Or that he didn't have the look of the Jew. So he was a Gentile. He was walking with Paul in Jerusalem. And when they saw him walking in Jerusalem, they immediately jumped to the conclusion that he was bringing Trophimus into the temple. So they supposed, they assumed that he brought the man into the temple. And, and this, this, was, this, this gave rise to that charge. And Paul said that, well, uh, Trophimus never even gone near the, near the temple at all, let alone the premises itself. No, he was, not, he was never near there. So these accusations were false. They saw something, but they did not actually ascertain it, and then they jumped to conclusions. I think that this is where that we need to be calm about things when we hear things. You know, calmness in responding to any accusations against us or uh, against others, calmness is always very wise and very helpful towards resolute, uh, resolving disputes. So when you hear something, never just react by jumping up of, this, of your chair, but be calm about it. Remember what James says in James 1, 19-20? He said that, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You hear things, but don't flare up so quickly. Keep calm about it. You hear it, but you be slow to, to, to anger. Because once you're angry, you, you, you won't do anything right. The writer of the Proverbs is in Proverbs 25, verse 28. Proverbs 25, 28 is a great passage to, to always remember. Where the, the writer says, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. So in other words, the, 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 the Proverbs is saying, saying this, that if you are very short-fused, and you just flare up just with a little thing, you are vulnerable to any attacks. Just like a city without walls, you have no defense, no immunity. Hot hates burn bridges. Okay, if you are hot headed, it will burn bridges to reconciliation, and a cool and calm mind will and soft answer will dampen any fire of passion and anger. You know, and that's very important. We must dampen the the, the fires of passion and anger when we are dealing with any any issues, and move the issue towards a conversational plane and talk sensibly, logically and talk with an open and fair mind and this will lead to good resolution you see 
And you see that when you look at the Western tribes, that was the problem with them, is it? They, in the beginning especially, when they heard the rumours, they assumed the worst of the Eastern tribes. They didn't even investigate, they raised the army, they were ready to go across and kill them. This is the kind of sinful tendency that uh, many people are guilty of. We make the worst assumptions of others first, before we even try to clarify things, before we even try to verify information, where, what we have heard, wherever possible. Such an attitude will always rule out you know, the granting of a benefit of a doubt to the other side. You know, and if you are not going to give the other side the benefit of the doubt, you will never have the desire to want to conduct a fair-minded investigation. And you will jump to conclusions that are unfounded. And the prospects of it getting, you getting wrong is very, very high and real. So that's one option. Uh, you know, basically that either ignore them or pull the trigger and destroy them. Or the third option is to go and talk to the other side. Right, go and talk to the other side. Yes, while it is good to talk, you know, one thing is that some people, they only want to talk to the other side just to prove that they are right. Isn't it? Have you come across people like that? If you have a, you heard of something, you know, or you are in an argument, okay, I'll talk to you, but the, the purpose of the talk is not to try to figure out where it went wrong, but to prove that I'm right. You see? You know, that is, is very common. This is a very biased approach to, uh, to, to, to dispute resolution. Because the only interest of wanting to talk to the other side is to prove that he is right. It's not to resolve the issues. And you know, when you look at the case of Jesus, it's a great example of it. How many times did the Jews approach Jesus wanting to talk to him over some issues where in their mind, their motive was trying to prove him wrong, isn't it? You see, trying to get at him. So this is not, it's good to talk, but don't talk like that. Okay, don't talk like that. On the other hand, there are, there are some who want to talk and to talk in order to understand the issues on the other side before they draw conclusions. I think this is a good way. This is a wise way. This is especially the case where the evidence is lacking or you're not very sure of things. So don't jump to conclusion when not very sure. It's a commendable attitude. Talk with a view of trying to find out, investigate and resolve matter. That's so why when you look at Galatians 2, it's a good example when Paul wrote in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, when he talked about his confrontation with Peter, when Peter was very hypocritical. You know, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul said that he confronted Peter you know, over his sin of hypocrisy. But whether Paul was there when Peter did the uh, sin over the issue itself, we, we, we are not told. But if he was absent at the time, or because, and all he knew was that he heard from some brethren that Peter did this to the Gentile brethren in the church, by, by Paul coming to Peter to talk to him was the right approach. You see, and, and in verse, verse, verse 14, you know that of Galatians 2, that uh, Paul said that when, when, I, when, when, I, when I saw that something was wrong, that implies that he did his investigations and then he realized that what Peter did was wrong. Then he, uh, then he confronted Peter over it. Instead of accusing Peter the moment he saw him, without actually asking questions. So he did his investigation, he realized that something was wrong, then he rebuked Peter over it. So this is the right and proper attitude you know, that for us to adopt when we deal with uh, conflicts, especially with sin issues. Unless we have concrete evidence of sin, it is always proper and wise for us to start communication. 
started with a with the purpose of trying to figure out what's going on yeah and then act according to the truth when you look at the eastern uh, western tribes in the story of John, J- J- Joshua 22, 22 they arrived the first thing what they did, what did they do instead of finding out what was going on if you notice Phineas was accusing he started accusing the eastern tribe of rebellion against God and committing treachery straight away you know you did this you did this you did this this is not the way for us to, to deal with brethren if you heard something you want to deal with the issue when you talk to the person I think it's not a wise thing to do to the moment you see him you start accusing him of sin you see it is always better to make a statement of fact say something which is factual like for example that we, we heard that uh, you guys built an altar and we saw the altar isn't it you know or you can make a factual statement or you could ask questions first and then let the other party answer it you see so in answering they, before they answer they have to think about it how to answer and hopefully when they, by the time they answer the questions that they will be convicted in their heart that they have done wrong I think that this is where it's, it's helpful a great example of it is in 1 Kings 19 uh, verses 9 to 10 you remember Elijah the prophet remember how Jezebel threatened his life and he ran for his life you know he ran as far as the Bathsheba down south hiding there uh, the Lord took care of him what did the Lord do to him after, after beating him the Lord asked questions what are you doing here Elijah and let Elijah go on ranting and then eventually he realized that yeah I think that uh, that's a bit silly of me to be here actually I shouldn't be here at all so God used questions you know to try to resolve problems Jesus himself is a master of this as well in how he convicts sinners of their sin in the account of the Good Samaritan this is a good example of it remember that the Good Samaritan story the, 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 the lawyer trying to justify his bias and discrimination against the Gentiles asked and said that well who is my neighbor you love your neighbor so who is my neighbor in other words the, 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 the lawyer was basically saying that well my neighbor according to Moses law is not the Gentile it's the Jews my, my brethren so Jesus started the, the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan and then at the end of it in verse 36 of Luke 10 so Jesus asked a question to the lawyer he said that so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell amongst the thieves so he asked the question and the lawyer said yeah the one who helped so in other words he made the, the lawyer realize the error of his own discrimination that the neighbor actually includes the Gentiles you see so asking questions is a very good way of trying to figure out the truth and trying to convict the person of, of, of the wrongs if any similarly in John 8 the case of the woman caught in adultery is the same as well that uh, you know that Jesus made a statement of fact rather than asking questions he who is all sin let him cast the first stone you know in other words they're calling for the witnesses to come forward and cast the first stone we know the story the, the woman was caught but the man was not there so without the man you can't convict the woman of adultery so immediately the people's minds were convicted and they left so these are these are very good ways you know hurling accusations at first instance do not often work effectively the reason is because when you accuse somebody the person becomes defensive then he closes his door he closes his mind he becomes very defensive then it's very hard to actually to, to resolve uh, the, the, the dispute or have any fruitful conversation instead try what the Lord has been doing ask questions make statements of facts in this way perhaps that you will help 
the person opened up his mind and started asking himself questions and causing him to realize where he has gone wrong and convict himself by his own answers. I think that's the best way of doing it. Jesus has done it. The Lord has done it in, in the Old Testament. Very effective. And one final, a great point that we need to note, as far as the Western tribes are concerned, they started off very badly. They wanted to fight the battle, go across the river, and they start accusing the other side. But one of the good things that we can see from the Western tribes is they were very generous towards the Eastern tribes. They, they said, that, well, if you guys build this altar because you think the land is unclean, come over to the side of the river. We share our land with you. They were very generous. They were willing to share their inheritance with the Eastern, Eastern tribes. We see this generous spirit in God as well. When God saw the uncleanness of humanity who are in sin and condemned to hell, God offered hope isn't it, and salvation in Christ Jesus. God offered heaven instead of hell for us, for those who are willing to obey. A generous spirit is always helpful when it comes to uh, dispute resolution. You know that do not just go there and try to figure out what's gone wrong, but offer something, make a sacrifice, and that helps in resolving problems. Paul has this mindset, you know, that his, his mind is always that he wanted the best for his, his, his Jewish brethren. Even though they were spiteful against him, he didn't mind. You know, he said that I'd rather, give my, 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 I'd rather be condemned in hell so that they can be saved. So that was the kind of mindset that you see in Paul. And, and that's why that you see that Paul's reaction towards the Jews, in spite of their persecution of him, has always been very kind and merciful. You know, that he, he did this. And this is the kind of mentality we need to adopt. The spirit of self-sacrifice. Whether, when we, when we know our problems, whether it is our time, take our time to investigate matters, or pray about things for them, or sometimes even risk to be called names and ridiculed by others by trying to help, it doesn't matter. Be generous in our spirit. Brethren are often too selfish and too afraid, you know, to, to actually to, to deal with problems for fear that their, their good name, as you call, their relationships with their friends and brethren in the church might be endangered if they were asked too many questions. Sometimes they are too afraid of rocking the boat, you know, and as a result of that, that ex which exposes the soft underbelly of the, of the congregation, and then when it's time that if the, if the church refused to do anything about the wrongs, they are too afraid that they may have to make the right decision to leave the church, leave their friends, leave their, 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 you know, the congregation that they have been long-term members of which they are reluctant to do and hence that's why that they are reluctant to deal with problems and hence they sometimes brethren ignore it brethren burying our heads in the sand uh, is not the way to do it okay it's no it's no good trying to imagine that the church the congregation is great and uh, peaceful church it's pointless to imagine that the membership is not sinful and there's no problems amongst the membership Whenever there are issues, we need to deal with it and not just pretend that they are not there or even try to justify the actions which are sinful. This is not an act of love. Okay, this, this is not the way to help uh, the, the church and brethren to grow in Christ and to do right. So what's the point of our study today? I think that the, the account in Genesis or, or Joshua 22 that we have seen today shows us how to and how not to deal with problems within the church. I think it also teaches us of the right and the wrong attitudes in, re in resolving problems within the church. Joshua 22 serves not only to educate us, 
But it, they, it also serves to warn us to watch out of those pitfalls to avoid when dealing with problems. And none of these methods involves ignoring the problem. Okay? So although Israel had escaped bloodshed, but this experience in Joshua 22 has nevertheless taught them some precious lessons when dealing with problems amongst the brethren. I think today we can benefit from their experience. We can learn how to deal with problems. And number one is never to make assumptions and think the worst of our brethren when any issues arise, arises. It teaches us to approach the issues with an open and fair mind. It teaches us that the benefit of doubt should always be available wherever possible. You know, because we want others to give us the same benefit of doubt. So that's don't draw conclusions too quickly. Don't jump the gun too quickly. Don't pull the trigger too quickly. To truly resolve matters, especially when the matter involves sin and, you know, our primary aim should not be to prove that we are right and the other person is wrong, but rather that we want to persuade the other person to turn away from their sins if they have sinned against God and let God be glorified in all things. To win the offender back to God, we must be prepared also to make sacrifices. And this requires generosity on our part. You know, we, might, we, we, we may have to give up something important to us to win the other side to God. The greatest resolver of the world's greatest problems of sin is Jesus himself. And his mission on earth was so successful because he was generous. He gave himself so that we can be free from condemnation. Paul writes there in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, I'm going to end here very shortly, where Paul said, for you, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Our Lord's generosity and sacrifice to help resolve our problems of sin and evil is unquestionable and is unsurpassed. And we as his followers and children of God must learn from his great example. When it comes to dealing with church and life problems, let us adopt an open mind. Let us adopt a fair mind. Let us be willing to confront the issues and effectively and properly communicate with the other side when the problems are there. Brethren, as I end here, although it is good to talk when there are problems within the church, let us learn to communicate in the right and proper manner. Avoid the pitfalls where, which we have learned today from the Western tribes so that the church can be protected and kept pure from sin and evil from within. May God be glorified in all things. Thank you.